Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you're listening to this on release day, happy Labor Day, and I hope you have a nice, long, relaxing weekend. Um, for those of you tuning in to this show for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I'm going to pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then, I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or the data or even just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'm going to give you a brief breakdown of each question that will hopefully keep you entertained while also teaching you a little bit along the way. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you'll be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding that question. I consider myself a general trivia show, so you never know what you're going to get each week. If you are a fan of the podcast, or if this is your first time listening, thanks for hanging out with me, and I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. Um, I would ask that you would please recommend the podcast to a friend or a fellow trivia lover. Getting the word out there about ThinkCap really helps me um, to grow and produce more content for you guys. Um, in order to keep up with the content that I do put out, uh, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. I, have, I post links to all of the week's podcasts there. In addition, I post some fun facts, historical events, brain teasers, and we're probably going to have another merch giveaway in the next couple of weeks. So be on the lookout for that. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap Trivia, and let's get this show started. Alright, once again, I've got a couple different questions for you today, and what I'm going to do is read each question, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So, sit back and relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one. In Major League Baseball, every single number from 1 to 99 has been used in a regular season game. Just this year, the last number, which had never been used previously, was issued to a pitcher. What was that final number? Once again, in Major League Baseball, every single number from 1 to 99 has been used in a regular season game. Just this year, the last number, which had never been used previously, was issued to a pitcher. What was that final number? Question number two. What instrument was Clarence Clemens famous for playing? Once again, what instrument was Clarence Clemens famous for playing? Question number three. In fluid dynamics, what is the property of a fluid that tends to prevent it from flowing when subjected to an applied force? Once again, in fluid dynamics, what is the property of a fluid that tends to prevent it from flowing when subjected to an applied force. Question number four. What is the name of the layer between Earth's crust and Earth's core? 
Once again, what's the name of the layer between Earth's crust and Earth's core? Question number five. At 188 decibels, what animal is capable of creating the loudest sound? Once again, at 188 decibels, what animal is capable of creating the loudest sound? Question number six. What was the U.S. code name for the entirety of the Battle of Normandy? Once again, what was the U.S. code name for the entirety of the Battle of Normandy? Question number seven. What is the only dog breed whose hair has a hook or barb on the end of each individual follicle? Once again, what is the only dog breed whose hair has a tiny hook on the end of each individual follicle? Question number eight. Who was the original choice to play the role of the Terminator before Arnold Schwarzenegger got the part? Once again, who was the original choice to play the role of the Terminator before Arnold Schwarzenegger got the part? Question number nine. What 1902 children's book continues to sell over 50,000 copies per year? Once again, what 1902 children's book continues to sell over 50,000 copies per year? And question number 10, the last one for this week. What country has won the most World Cups? Once again, what country has won the most World Cups? All right, so now that I have read all 10 questions for you and I've given you a couple moments to think of your answers, I'm going to go through, break down each question one by one, and give you a little bit of detail behind those answers. So let's get started back with question number one. Question number one was, in Major League Baseball, every single number from 1 to 99 has been used in a regular season game. Just this year, the last number, which had never been used previously, was issued to a pitcher. What was that final number? And your correct answer is 89. 89 is the last number to ever be issued to a Major League Baseball player. It was never used before. Until this year, actually, there were three numbers that had never been worn before for a regular season MLB game. There were three, 86, 89, and 92. Those three numbers, again, had never been worn by any players ever. Every other number from 1 to 99 had been chosen over the course of the league's history. And actually, the New York Yankees were the first Major League Baseball team to issue numbers on the backs of uniforms on January 22nd, 1929. A couple other teams kind of dabbled with putting positions on the jerseys. Some teams tried some other things. The Yankees were the first to use numbers, and clearly that <laughs> has been a successful um, uniform addition that has lasted generations. Um, if you want to learn a couple more fun facts about the Yankees' number history, you can go back and listen to my seventh question on episode 10, which discusses the Yanks' retired numbers. Um, but yeah, 91 years later, the Bronx Bombers issued the last unused MLB number to pitcher Miguel Yahure. 
It only seems fitting, right? They were the first to issue a number, and they were the last. Earlier this year, the St. Louis Cardinals issued number 86 to reliever Jesus Cruz, and number 89 to reliever Genesis Cabrera. The Florida Marlins pitcher Brandon LeBrant also was issued number 86 this season, so for whatever reason, I guess all the MLB teams decided, you know what, let's put these last numbers out. Um, and, you know, this year of 2020 has been historic for many reasons. When it comes to baseball, it will always be known as the shortened season due to the pandemic, but it can also be known as the year in which the final three jersey numbers were issued to players for the first time. All right, question number two was, what instrument was Clarence Clemens famous for playing? And your correct answer is the saxophone. He played saxophone for, the, uh, for Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. Clarence Clemens, also known by his nickname, The Big Man, was an American musician who, like I said, played with Springsteen's E Street Band from 1912 up until his death in 2011. Clemens suffered from a stroke in June of that year and passed away due to complications from it at the age of 69. In 2014, he was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the E Street Band. He was legendary for his beautiful saxophone solos and for his stage presence when performing with Springsteen. However, his legacy and people's love for him goes much deeper than just the music he played. In 1969, all the way back in 69, the big man joined a band called Joyful Noise. This is especially noteworthy as in 1969, the music scene was still very segregated and his presence in the band, who was all white, was seen as blasphemous by some. Norman Selden, who was the leader of Joyful Noise, and, and he was actually the one who asked Clemens to join them, he has said, quote, There were no black bands playing Mrs. J's and the Wonder Bar. It broke barriers, but we had to pay hell at the time. Meaning, he knew that having Clemens as a part of his band would mean some people would not like their music. They wouldn't like that decision, but he appreciated um, the big man's talent and his stage presence enough to add him to the band anyway. There were even some club promoters who refused to book the band just because they were an integrated band. They just wouldn't book them outright. However, they were permitted to play in some clubs, and in those clubs, Clemens was a hit. Um, Selden himself has said, again, quote, He had the ability to command an audience. I was the lead singer, but he was the one who could hold a crowd. Um, the group used to do what is known as a New Orleans strut, where Clarence would lead the audience around the club in a line while dancing. So, sounds like these guys had a blast at their shows. They must have been a hoot to watch. And Bruce Springsteen would first play with Clemens during a Joyful Noise show in Point Pleasant, and their chemistry was instantaneous and powerful. As I said before, he would join Springsteen's group in 1972. Springsteen has said, quote, Standing side by side, we were badass. On any given night, two of the baddest asses on the planet. Clarence was a figure out of a rock and roll storybook, and together we told a story bigger than any of the ones I had written. And his legacy, it certainly lives on through Springsteen's music, but if you have the chance, I would absolutely recommend looking up some of the big man's saxophone solos on YouTube. He was an absolutely phenomenal musician. All right, question number three was, in fluid dynamics, what is the property of a fluid that tends to prevent it from flowing when subjected to an applied force? 
And your correct answer to this one is viscosity. Viscosity is the right answer. Viscosity is simply defined as a measure of a liquid's resistance to deformation at a given rate. Basically, viscosity is how thick a liquid is, and it can be conceptualized as quantifying the internal friction between different layers of a liquid when it's in motion. Again, think of it this way. Think of the difference between pouring water into a glass versus pouring syrup onto some waffles. Water is going to move and take the shape of its container much faster than the maple syrup, which drips out slowly from its container. This is because water has a lower viscosity than syrup. The higher the viscosity of a liquid, the slower it will take the shape of its container. In one particular experiment that has been running since 1930 at the University of Queensland, scientists have been performing a drip test with pitch, which is a viscoelastic polymer, which can be natural or manufactured. And in July 2014, in this experiment, the sample dropped for only the ninth time in over 80 years. Ninth time. That's how thick this one liquid is. And there are also some liquids which are called non-Newtonian, because that means their viscosity is not constant. Think of ketchup as an example. This explains why it's hard to get the ketchup out of a glass bottle, but the more you bang on it, you kind of thin it out to the point where it comes splattering all over your food and you got way more out than you would have liked anyway. But yeah, that is another consequence of viscosity. And like I said, ketchup is non-Newtonian. Um, not all liquids are that. Like think of water. Water would just be a simple viscous fluid. And yeah, that's a pretty good summary of viscosity for you. All right, question number four was, what is the name of the layer between the Earth's crust and the Earth's core? And your correct answer is the mantle. The mantle is the right answer. And as I stated in the question, the mantle is the large region of material that exists between the Earth's core and its crust. All terrestrial planets, a number of asteroids, and some planetary moons have mantle layers in their makeup. The Earth's mantle is made up of silicate rock, which is comprised of minerals containing chiefly silicon and oxygen. This region makes up approximately 67% of the planet's mass and has a thickness of 1,800 miles, making it encapsulate about 84% of the Earth's volume. While the Earth's core is made of molten material, the mantle is predominantly solid. Now, I, the reason I say predominantly solid is as the Earth has shifted over time and it continues to move ever so slowly, geologists will actually say that in geological time, the region that is the mantle actually acts as a viscous fluid. Good thing we just learned about viscosity, but man, I mean, it just moves so slow you conceptualize that one liquid that I was talking about that has dripped nine times since 1930. And the Earth, it's moving under us at all times. It's pretty fascinating to think about, um, but that's all I'm going to talk about for this question. All right, so that brings us to question number five, which was, at 188 decibels, what animal is capable of creating the loudest sound? And your correct answer is the blue whale. The blue whale is the right answer. It makes sense that they can produce the loudest sound as they are easily the largest animals on the planet. The largest blue whale, verified by scientists, was 98 feet in length. 
These animals emit very loud, repetitive, low-frequency rumbling sounds to communicate with each other. Like I said, their calls can reach a blaring 188 decibels, which is louder than a space shuttle launch and just about as loud as the 1883 Krakatoa volcanic eruption that, for reference, was distinctly heard as far away as Perth in Australia, which is approximately 1,930 miles away from the Indonesian volcano, and it was heard at the islands of Rodriguez, which was approximately 3,000 miles away. So that just gives you a little bit of reference as to how loud this call is. Biologists who study the whales have determined that the sounds they emit are very deliberate and calculated, pointing to a sort of whale language that the animals use to communicate. Their loud calls can be heard for hundreds of miles underwater, especially those calls that are used to attract and find mates. And speaking of mates, blue whales also have the largest hearts on the planet. Their hearts can weigh over 400 pounds. And funny enough, they have proportionately small brains. Their brains only weigh on average about 15.26 pounds, which is only about 0.007% of the animal's total body weight. But even though they are so small, they are smart animals and clearly they are capable at communicating over long distances due to their thunderous calls. Question number six was, what was the US code name for the entirety of the Battle of Normandy? And your correct answer is Operation Overlord. Operation Overlord was the code name for the Battle of Normandy, which was the allied operation that launched the successful invasion of German-occupied Western Europe during World War II. This operation was launched on June 6, 1944, with the Normandy landings. The distinction here is that Operation Overlord described the entire Battle of Normandy, while if you guessed Operation Neptune, that refers to just those first Normandy beach landings. And I can't blame you for thinking of the Normandy beach landings first. That operation, now referred to as D-Day, was the largest seaborne invasion in world history. It began the liberation of German-occupied France and later the entirety of Western Europe and laid the foundations of the Allied victory on the Western Front. I'll back this up a little bit and mention that the Allies actually used a complex system of misinformation in order to not tip off the Axis forces of their master plan. Hitler had a sense that the Allies would try to invade via beach landings, so he ordered his commanders to build up what we know as the Atlantic Wall. Essentially, this was a planned, it was planned to be 15,000 different strong points located along the coast from Spain all the way to Norway that would be continuously manned by over 300,000 troops. One of these fortification points was, of course, at Normandy, where concrete gun emplacements were built and wooden stakes, metal tripods, mines, and large anti-tank obstacles were all placed on the beach to delay the approach of landing crafts and to impede the movement of tanks who would be invading on their land. And all of these impediments were placed at the high tide mark of the beach as they expected the allies would invade at high tide in order to make their run up the beach shorter. From the Allied side, they chose the coast of Normandy of northwestern France to be their best strategic invasion point. 
And the Americans would end up landing at the sectors codenamed Utah and Omaha, the British at Sword and Gold, and the Canadians at Juno. So that's kind of how they broke up the invasion points. And anytime I look at pictures or just think about the scale of the Normandy invasions, whether it be on D-Day, I, I can't help but be in awe of the bravery of those soldiers who rushed those beaches. Um, in total, because of their bravery, a 1,200 plane airborne assault preceded the amphibious assault being from water, and it involved more than 5,000 vessels in, in all. And in the entirety of the Operation Overlord, nearly 1,000, excuse me, 160,000 troops crossed the English Channel on 6th of June, and more than 2 million Allied troops were in France by the end of August, which was obviously a very, very, very large turning point in World War II. All right, question number seven was, what is the only dog breed whose hair has a hook or barb at the end of each individual follicle? And your correct answer is Dalmatians. Dalmatians is the right answer. Dalmatian hairs are stiff and they weave themselves into almost a fabric. They're not easy to remove from clothing or furniture. The barbs are very tiny and to human touch, their coat feels soft and velvety and it doesn't get oily interesting enough, so they don't tend to get as smelly as some other dogs. Historically, Dalmatians were bred to be coaching dogs who ran alongside carriages or horseback riders for miles. And what they would do is discourage stray dogs from interfering with the horses, and it would alert the coachman to the presence of approaching highwaymen, and it would be guarding the carriage at rest stops. So they were very useful, very loyal dogs and they're smart and they have an endless capacity for exercise. So as such, it became popular for firemen to have Dalmatians by their side to clear paths through the town for their horse-drawn fire engines, much like they did as coaching dogs. I'm sure you've all seen photos of a Dalmatian sitting in a fire engine, whether it be a cartoon. I don't think I've ever actually seen one in real life, but we all definitely have that image in our head. And that's kind of where it came from, is them leading these horse-drawn fire engines at the time. And as for their famous spots, no one is exactly sure how the breed developed the distinctive markings over time. Some theorize that their spots might be the result of a mutation in a gene from a ticked coat, as the spots today now appear larger and less ragged around the edges than those seen in pictures of early Dalmatians. It's interesting too that as Dalmatian puppies are born fully white and that their coats develop their spots over time. So yeah, some pretty interesting um, information about Dalmatians. I actually, before looking into this, didn't know the history of why firemen chose Dalmatians. So that was probably actually my favorite part uh, to learn a little bit about this question. Question number eight was, who was the original choice to play the role of the Terminator before Arnold Schwarzenegger got the part? And your correct answer is O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson is the right answer. Orion Pictures proposed that the retired NFL superstar would be the lethal killing machine from the future. They proposed this to director James Cameron, and he said, Orion came to me and said, are you sitting down? You must sit down. I want O.J. Simpson for the Terminator. And they were serious enough in, in thinking about Simpson that they approached eventual Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger 
with the offer of playing the brave soldier from the future, who would ultimately be played by Michael Bine before they offered him the role of the Terminator. They were that serious about it, and interestingly enough, it was Simpson's pleasant persona that turned off director James Cameron. He said, quote, This was when everybody loved him, and ironically, that was part of the problem. He was this likable, goofy, and kind of innocent guy. Basically, they didn't think that it would be believable for OJ to play the role of a heartless killer. Now, <laughs> I would consider this general knowledge, but Simpson would, of course, go on trial for the murders of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend Ronald Goldman in 1994, so I think you can kind of see the ironic humor, dark humor maybe, in that statement and that decision. Simpson was ultimately acquitted of the murders, though, in a civil court later awarded wrongful death judgment against him and in the end Arnold Schwarzenegger would obviously go on to have a successful acting career with the Terminator series and would go on to later become the governor of California but yeah overall just completely fascinating that the logic for OJ Simpson not being the Terminator was that they didn't think it would be believable for him to be a killer again I, I think that's hilarious. I'm, I'm sure you do too. But yeah, anyway, let's move on to question number nine. Question number nine was what 1902 children's book continues to sell over 50,000 copies per year? And your correct answer is The Tale of Peter Rabbit. The Tale of Peter Rabbit is the right answer. A little bit different from the last question, talking about murderous machines from the future, O.J. Simpson, all that stuff. Um, this popular children's book was written by Beatrix Potter for a five-year-old named Noel Moore. The main character, Peter Rabbit, was named after Potter's childhood pet rabbit, who was originally named Peter Piper. It originally was written as a short story in a letter to the child, to uh, little Noel Moore, but Moore's caretaker realized the potential that the stories had and suggested that Beatrix Potter rework the stories into a child book format. Potter added more text to add more suspense and added black and white photos and even painted her own cover art for the book. The book follows the story of a mischievous young Peter Rabbit who finds himself in the garden of Mr. McGregor. The story has inspired the imaginations of children for generations, as it has been reprinted multiple times, has been translated into 36 different languages, and it's estimated to have sold over 45 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling books of all time. Alright, question number 10 was, what country has won the most World Cups? And your correct answer is Brazil. Brazil has won the most World Cups. The Brazil national team has been the most successful team in the history of the World Cup. After the tournament's inception in 1930, they would win their first cup in 1958 and win four others, or five total, with their most recent win occurring in 2002. They always seem to be in contention to win it all. In addition to these first place finishes, they have come in second place twice, third place twice, and fourth place, you guessed it, twice as well. In their history, they have played in 1,009 World Cup matches, winning 73 times, 
having a plus 124 goal differential and only losing 18 times. In addition, they are also the only team to have played in every single FIFA World Cup and have never needed a playoff to enter the tournament. So they've just been so good. They have never missed a tournament. They have never even needed a play-in to get in. The country itself also produces top talent in the sport, with four players in the team's history receiving the Ballon d'Or. That's French, uh, so I probably butchered that. But uh, that is an annual football award that's presented by a French news magazine, and it's one of the oldest and generally regarded as the most prestigious individual award for soccer players. So they have team success, they have individual success. The country of Brazil, when it comes to World Cups, really, really, really is just that upper echelon team that every other nation hopes that they could be. All right, so that brings us to the end of this week's show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask that you would please review, like, or subscribe, and follow if you can. Any feedback from you guys is huge and really helps us to take this podcast to the next level. In addition, I always love to hear what you guys want to learn. I talked about it at the end of last week's episode, how the first question of every week's podcast are going to be fan submitted questions from this point forward um the last two podcasts have started with baseball trivia because i've gotten two great baseball trivia questions from a friend of mine who reached out via think caps instagram so um if you guys want to learn about anything specific comment on think caps posts send think cap an instagram and i'll try and get all of that information into a show for you guys um So yeah, that's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. I will catch you next week. I hope you have a great Labor Day or had a great Labor Day weekend and take care. I'm a whip, I'ma throw my closet, hold on my deposit, Gucci, Louis, Gucci, leather, tripping like a faucet, shade through my faucet, suede on the process, playing